Good morning, church. Today's reading is from John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take them yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. These are the words of our Lord. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. You guys enjoying this weather? This change of weather for us? It's outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube live right now. Thank you for joining us and those that will watch sometime during this day and throughout this next week. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 19. Believe is our current teaching series. We've only got a couple more weeks, and we're going to head into a teaching series titled Hearing the Voice of God. And that's where we're headed. So we're coming up to the end of the gospel according to John. This weekend's title is Life Transforming Power. We're looking at the crucifixion of Christ. Also grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along part of the intro here. In our study of the gospel according to John, we, we now come to the crucifixion of Christ. Now just as Moses in front of the burning bush took off his shoes because it was holy ground, in John 19, we need to do something equivalent in our hearts. We need to come before this passage with a sense of its amazing holiness and life-transforming power. I mean, this is pure gospel, what we're talking about here this weekend. And I'm telling you, if you understand this, if you give your life to Christ and it gets a hold of your life, it will transform your life, unlike anything else. And so, let's talk about this crucifixion of Christ. Crucifixion in Jesus' day and execution in our day has two different, has two great differences. And uh, the first one is our method typically private, never done for the public to view. Crucifixion was very public. It was meant to say crime does not pay. 
It was meant to leave a lingering reminder in the minds of those who witnessed it that if you break the law, you pay the supreme price. That's the first contrast comparison. Second one is that our method is swift. Crucifixion is lingering, long and drawn out. It could take up to days, days for a victim to die. A word was created to describe those who died from crucifixion. Anybody know what that word was? or is excruciating, the word excruciating to describe the cross, those who died from crucifixion. Literally the word means, if you look that word up, excruciating, out of the cross. And so we're going to do a review of Jesus' crucifixion. We'll walk through the text and then we'll finish up by talking about, we'll answer some questions here after we've reviewed Jesus' crucifixion. What does this say about God? What does it say about us? And then what does the cross accomplish, ultimately accomplish? That's, first of all, the flogging. That's where it begins in chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now what's interesting about this story is that Pilate's attempt to free Jesus doesn't work. He's actually trying to free Jesus, so he tries a different approach by having him flogged, hoping this lesser punishment would appease the mob. In fact, it even tells us in Luke chapter 23, verse 16, this is what uh, Pilate says, I will therefore punish and release him. But, but it obviously didn't work. Flogging was commonly referred to as the halfway death. Invariably, its subjects slipped into shock, some died. It was not uncommon for a person to go insane and lose his reasoning. It was administered by a professional executioner known as a lictor, L-I-C-T-O-R. His weapon was a flagellum an instrument made of, of, of a short wooden handle to which were attached long strips of leather with bits of bone and metal sewn into the tips. The victim was stripped of all of his clothing and bent over a low stone column where he was tied with his face toward the ground or toward the floor. The entire process usually took less than four minutes, but the victim was effectively bit, beaten about the back and the shoulders until he was raw. Victims were revived with salt water splashed on them. Pain was used to keep the level of pain conscious. And then we have the mocking by the, soldier, uh, by the soldiers in verses two and three. Listen to what it says, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. So at this point, Jesus became a comic king in the minds of the soldiers. Jesus stood before the soldiers naked. His body was a mass of swollen, bruised, and bloodied flesh. They decided if he is a king, then he should have a scepter, a reed taken by a nearby plant. He needed a robe that came scarcely to his elbows. He needed a crown made of thorns measuring from about three quarters of an inch to about three and a half inches in length, pressed down on his 
on his head. They sarcastically hailed him king of the Jews, spitting at him. I don't know if you've ever had anybody spit at you. It's very, very offensive. They spit at him in the face of the God of the galaxies. No doubt every vulgar and obscene statement was shouted at him. The mob led by the religious leaders treated him, treated Jesus more like a clown than a king. There's nothing we fear more than being thought ridiculous. Nothing penetrates the armor of our self-esteem than, than mocking laughter. And that's exactly what Jesus experienced. The Romans hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Romans. Now, the next part of this is Jesus' final trial before Pilate and the crowd. That's in verses 4 through 15 in our text. So time and again, Pilate pronounces Jesus guiltless and tries to free him, but to no avail. The mob continues to scream out, crucify him, crucify him. Now, what's fascinating here, if you have your Bibles open, turn look at uh, verses 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, that is Jesus, you will, not, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So here's the point. Jesus was not a helpless victim or a pitiful martyr who suddenly and unexpectedly wound up on a cross when his original plan failed. That couldn't be further from the truth. No, his death on the cross was part of God's plan from the beginning to redeem all of mankind. It was predicted in the Old Testament. It was proclaimed in the New Testament. Very clearly stated. Verse 16, so he, Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. The next part of this is walking to the site. Look at verse 17. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. It was very common in those days for there to be a procession through the streets of Jerusalem. The soldiers redressed Jesus in his tunic and around the victim's neck was a small sign stating his crime. The victim carried his own cross, that is the cross beam, to the place of execution. And at the death site was the vertical timber to which the cross beam would be attached. Victims who made the walk were surrounded by four soldiers. In front of them was the, their leader, a centurion. And then there was the nailing to the cross, verse 18. There they crucified him and with, with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. The victim was, was jerked down, was forced to lay down on his back with his arms outstretched and was mounted on the cross before it was placed in its upright position. To hold the person in place, the soldiers drove large five-inch steel spikes into the feet and the, and the wrist or hands. Then the cross was tilted upright and dropped into its socket with a jolt so that 
the victim hung just beyond a soldier's normal reach. And this is what's fascinating about this story and what John writes here. He talks about those standing by the cross in verses 25 through 27. Take a look at that if you've got your Bibles open. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Did you notice how it was written? When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. Who's that disciple? Yeah. The guy that's writing this. The one he loved. I love it. And then he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, if if you had witnessed a crucifixion, if you were standing at the foot of the cross and you watched a loved one being tortured like this, that would terribly traumatize you. You would throw up uncontrollably. My wife and I were driving down Bell Road a number of years ago, and we came upon a a car motorcycle accident, and I just glanced over, and the fire department just had arrived on the scene, and I looked over, and there were two twisted, mangled bodies laying off into the gutter as we went through there. And I told my wife, don't look, don't look. And she got a quick glimpse of it. It, it, it tormented her. It was traumatizing. And that was nothing compared to what these people were experiencing when you watched a loved one being crucified. Overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming. And then dying from the torture, verses 28 through 33. They would nail the right foot over the left foot, pushing the feet upward, buckling the knees so that the condemned man could push off of his feet upward to breathe. So so it was more like when they would when they nail their feet together, they would bring their knees down like this, so they were up, their arms were like this, so they'd have to push up to breathe. And so there's this constant movement by the victims throughout the crucifixion process as they're hanging on the cross to to try to breathe. They'd have to push up off of the the nail-pierced feet. And so raising and dropping his body to catch his breath, the victim would become desperate. The person on the cross fought for his life, but ultimately experienced death by suffocation. You see, they didn't want them to bleed out, so they were very careful about the the torture that they brought. And they really wanted to, to, to suffer and to fight for their breath, and ultimately they would die from suffocation. To hasten death, they would break the legs of the victim. We see that in verses 31 through 33. So they go and break the legs of the two besides Jesus, but they don't break his legs because he's already dead, and that's verified by the piercing in his side. By the way, that's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy that not a bone will be broken. The Old Testament predicted that, and that's exactly how it went down. And so, uh, and then in verse 30, Jesus said, Jesus said about seven statements. When you begin to examine all the gospel accounts, you see that he made seven statements while he was on the cross. Um, 
Which, by the way, I, I forgot to say this, that uh, typically when, you are, when you're being tortured, people who are in extreme pain or in crisis are, are very self-absorbed because they are in survival mode. I know that when I'm sick, I don't really care too much about what's going on in your life, okay? I mean, that's typical. I think we all t- tend to do that, uh, some a little more than others. And yet, here you got Jesus on the cross being concerned about his, his mom, wanting to take care of her. And that was one of the statements that he makes to his disciple John, take care of my mom. But another statement that he, he makes in verse 30, he says, it is finished. <laughs> That's a powerful statement. When you understand the implications of that, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This was not a statement of anguish, but of powerful victory. I mean, and, and we're gonna look at the implications of, of what that means. And then we got the burial of Jesus, verses 31 through 42, and guess who shows up to assist in Jesus' burial? Anybody? Nicodemus. Nicodemus, what? John chapter three? Yeah, many believe that he converted. He was a Pharisee, came at night asking Jesus these questions. I mean, this was quite a risk for him to be even recognized with or associated with Jesus, and so he assists in Jesus' burial. Really fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And, and so let's answer these questions now as it relates to the crucifixion of Jesus. What does the cross say about God? What does it say about us? And what does the cross accomplish ultimately? Now, if you can get what I'm about to say, I mean, like I said, this is pure gospel. You need to never, ever forget this. This is what transforms people's lives. And this is what will continue to transform our lives. So what does the cross say about God? Here's the first thing. God loves us so much and hates our sin and suffering that he was willing to come down and get involved in it. Philippians chapter two gives us the condescension of Jesus Christ. Condescension meaning, how far will God go to rescue us? We got this mess here on this planet Earth that we cause because of our rebellion against God. Do you know this, that all the suffering that we see, the ugliness of that suffering, is really revealing to us the ugliness of man's sin and rebellion against God. And and God knew that and had a plan and sent his son, God loves us so much and hates our sin and suffering that he was willing to come down and get involved in it. So, so to what extent will God get involved in our mess? Well, it tells us in Philippians chapter two, the condescension of Jesus Christ, he emptied himself of his glory and he became a man. And not just a man, he became a servant. Not just any servant, a servant who died. He didn't die just any death, he died a death of crucifixion for you and I. To rescue us, to redeem us, to love us. I like this quote from a notable pastor, theologian. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a man who was immune to it, immune to the pain and the suffering. The cross symbolizes divine suffering. I I, I love 2 Corinthians 8, 9. I, I believe it gives us a beautiful definition of grace. 
If someone asks you what is grace, just take them to 2 Corinthians 8 9. In fact, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. That we might become rich. How have we become rich? Well, one of the ways that we have become rich is the next point in answering the question, what does the cross say about God? Whatever you are going through, God has gone through it and understands and can help you and heal you. Do you hear that? That is so profound, so important, so, in, so much in understanding the cross and what Christ experienced for us. Jesus suffered physically, relationally, emotionally. To put the matter bluntly, Jesus was abused. He is the God of the abused. And so the presence of God in our suffering is one of the supreme distinctives of the Christian faith. This is what separates Christianity from every other belief system. Other world religions fall largely silent. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says this, for we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted and tested in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. So let us boldly come before the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, no matter what you're going through. He understands. He can help you. He can heal you. That is so profound. That's why we do what we do here. That's why I'm as excited, I'm probably more excited now than what I was when we first started this church because I know I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for everyone who believes in him. It saves them, it redeems them. Did you know that that's the biggest problem that we have on our, in the United States currently? People need to hear the gospel. People need to be transformed by the gospel. That's the issue, that's the big issue. That's the heart of all of our problems. People need to hear the gospel. You have a high priest who is is able to understand. He loves you. He cares about you. He can heal you, no matter what you've gone through. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. So I gave you 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Now I'm going to give you 9, 8. This is talking more about this grace. So, okay, so what's the extent of this grace? And it goes right along with this idea, the second point under what does the cross say about God? Whatever you are going through, God has gone through it and understands and can help you and heal you. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, this is what it says. Listen, this is powerful. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. The word abound is used a couple of times there. And literally, the imagery there is like a, a, a river overflowing its banks. God will give you so much of his power, his peace, his presence, that no matter what you're facing, he will give you more than enough. In fact, your life will overflow with his grace as a result of that. That's, that's what we know about God. This is what the cross says about God to us. Powerful. Okay, now let's, let's answer the question. What does the cross say about us? What does it say about us? Now this is what you need to keep in mind. The Christian life is not, is not a morally restrained will, but a supernaturally transformed heart. 
Does that make sense? It's not, okay, I heard the gospel message. Now I'm just going to try hard to honor him and love him and obey him. No, 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 no. That's not what it is. It's not morally restrained will motivated by fear and pride. I've seen, I've seen churches do that. I've seen pastors do that. I've heard messages that will motivate people out of fear and pride. Wrong motivation. That's extrinsic motivation. Fear, God's going to get you. Pride, you don't want to be like all those other people. That's extrinsic motivation to get you to do what you need to do. It's wrong. It's not a morally restrained will. It's a supernaturally transformed heart motivated out of a love, a, a heart that's smitten, captivated, overwhelmed by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And so it's intrinsic motivation. You do it because your heart is ravished by his love. So that's important to keep in mind. Now, there's two things you need to know for that transformation to take place. Two things. You've got to have a balance of, of these two things. Here's the first, first thing on your notes is that we are more sinful than we ever dared to think. That's the first thing. We are more sinful than we ever dared to think. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. I mean, we've all sinned, everybody, everybody on this planet. We've sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. Wages of sin is what, anybody? Death, separation from God. We're doomed for all eternity. We're gonna be eternally separated from God, but in this life, he gives us opportunity to turn back to him through the redemption of his son, Jesus. And so here's the next thought under that. We were so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. There's no other way to be reconciled to God. There's no other way to go to heaven. There's no other way you can have a right relationship with God. You can't do it by your own effort, works, achievement. No, it's a gift. It's received by grace through faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, is a gift from God. It's not by works, it's a gift from God so that no one can boast it's not by works. It's a gift from God. We can't boast. Can you imagine if we earned our salvation and we all got to heaven and we're all bragging about, well, what did you do to get here? Well, I did this and I did that or whatever. That would be a crazy place, wouldn't it? That'd be as messed up as this place. Don't you agree? I mean, that's how messed up our place is, is because of, uh, because of our pride. And so we're saved, for by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Here's the next one. This will eliminate pride and superiority. Did you know that that's the essence of sin is pride? In fact, the more pride you have, the less you can see this, what I just said. If you have a lot of pride, you're going to go, what do you mean more sinful than I ever dare to think? I'm not that bad. Thank you for revealing your pride to me. Because that's, that's exactly what pride does. The more pride you have, the less you can see your own sinfulness and your own pride. This will eliminate pride, an attitude of superiority. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. All you need is need if you want to come to faith in Christ. A lot of people don't have that because they have pride. So any Christian, and by the way, what I'm about to say here, we all fall prey to this. We all tend to go back to this pride thing. 
We struggle with this, but any Christian who is independent, bitter, self-righteous, self-centered, critical, holier-than-thou, sanctimonious, defensive, unteachable, unforgiving, and unthankful doesn't understand that they were so sinful Jesus had to die for them. Because I'm telling you, if you understand that, living the reality of it, it'll eliminate pride. It'll eliminate pride. And here's the, so here's, here's the next truth. So that's just one of the two truths that you need to understand if your life is going to be transformed by the gospel. So the first one is, I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think, but I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. I am more loved than I ever dared to dream. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he so loved you, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We were so loved that Jesus wanted to die for us. Romans 5, 8, it says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. What's interesting about that, Romans 5, 8, before that it, it talks about, it's almost like comparing God's love to kind of man's love, and it says, well, you know, maybe someone might die for a good person, and that's what it says. You know, we, people die for good people, but, but no one, it almost gives you the contrast that nobody will die for a wicked, evil person, and yet God died for us, and we were wicked and evil and rebelled against him, and he demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners. We were flipping him off. We were living our life however we wanted to live. We didn't want to have anything to do with him, and he bled and died for us. He loves us. Absolutely amazing. And this will eliminate fear or inferiority in your life. This is the next uh, result of that. First John 4, 18, his perfect love chases away all the fear in our lives. So any Christian who is inordinately fearful, Notice I said inordinately, you need to have some emotion working in your life, okay? You're not a zombie just walking around without any emotion. So emotion is a part of our life. It's a good thing, but when it becomes inordinate, we have a lot of negative emotions begin to haunt us and harass us and hassle us, then there's something wrong. We're not understanding the love of God. So any Christian who is inordinately fearful, anxious, worried, envious, regretful, or full of self-pity, despair, or hopelessness is a person who doesn't understand that they are so loved that Jesus wanted to die for them. So how could we ever feel superior to anyone when we understand that we were so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. Think about that. I've been around very self-righteous religious people that believe that at the same time, I don't think they really believe that because they wouldn't be self-righteous. They wouldn't be judgmental. They wouldn't be as hateful as they are. So how could we ever feel superior to anyone because we were so sinful Jesus had to die for us, but how could we ever feel inferior to anybody? Because he loved us so much he wanted to die for us. Fundamentally, if you look at your problems, all of our problems are rooted in either pride or fear. And the gospel tends to eliminate both of those. So let's, let's walk through these. So let's just say that you understand that you're more sinful than you ever dared to think, and, and there are churches that that's all they teach. Sin, 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 hard driving, legalistic, very religious, very pharisaical. 
So it's all, oh, you're more sinful than you ever dared to think, but minus, you're more loved than you ever dared to dream. And that produces Phariseeism. You become a Pharisee. You become self-righteous, judgmental, defensive. You have your list of rules, and if those people don't fit it, then they're out. So let's take the other one. So let's just say it's all love. There's churches like that too, all love. God just loves everybody. You're more loved than you ever dared to dream. Minus the truth, I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think. That's called cheap grace. It's called easy beliefism. You have your born again certificate, but there's no life change. And, and that's, that happens too. That's why you can have people in a church that it's all love, all love, but they're not really dealing with sin, and then there's no life change in, in them. So Phariseeism or easy beliefism with no life change. Here's what we need to keep in mind. And, and so there should be balance. We've tried to stay balanced. We certainly haven't done it perfectly here, but this is what I try to do week in and week out as we address the text and where we're going. We try to maintain this balance between our dire condition, our lostness, the, the debt that we owe God because of our sin, plus the magnitude of his provision, the cross, equals equals what? A humble, confident person who is fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's because you got that balance. See, if I don't understand my dire condition before Christ, then the magnitude of his provision in Christ will not transform my heart. I fall prey to either easy beliefism or Phariseeism. And it doesn't really transform my life. But man, when I understand Oh man, I owe a debt to God that I cannot pay and Jesus stepped in and paid that debt for me. Indescribable, indestructible joy, humble confidence, full devotion to Jesus Christ. That's, that transforms your life. There's nothing that transforms your life more. So that's your next fill in the blank. Humble confidence. That's right. This will transform you into a humble, Confident, fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. I gave you some verses there, but so let's, let's kind of unpack this humble confidence just so that we kind of understand what that means and what that looks like. So a humble person is not self-promoting and glory hungry. I get that from Philippians 2, 3, that we are not to have selfish ambition or vain conceit. So what happens if I turn away from God, I rebel against him, or maybe I'm not walking... Uh, I'm not living a life in light of the gospel. I tend to be, I tend to be self-promoting and glory-hungry because I'm not getting what I should be getting from God. The love and the, and the glory and the, and the significance that only can come from Him. If I'm, and, and so I'm living out of this deficit. So I'm going to be self-promoting and, and glory-hungry, trying to fill up the emptiness inside. But a humble person is not that. They're not self-promoting and glory-hungry. That verse in Philippians 2, 3 goes on, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others more significant than yourselves. In other words, 
I'm going to be more focused less on me because I'm filled up and I have what I need. I'm satisfied in him. I'm going to be more concerned about others. So a humble person is not self-promoting or glory hungry, but very contented, grateful, and they have a genuine love and concern for the well-being of others. That's a humble person because you have all that you want in Christ Jesus and you want others to experience it too. What about this confidence? What about a confident person? Well, they can face anything because they know that there is no sin or suffering that is a match for God's redeeming, restoring grace. That's a confident person. They know that God is for them and not against them. Did you know that? Romans 8, 31 and 32, listen to me. God is for you, he's not against you. God is for you, he's not against you. No matter what you're facing with your circumstances or people problems or whatever it might be, he's for you. No one is more for you than God. He's not holding out on you. He always has your best interest at heart. You can trust him as you go through difficulties. So it gives you confidence. God, you're with me. You love me. You're going to get me through these problems or whatever they might be. Humble confidence and full devotion to Christ. Full devotion to Christ. So what does the cross accomplish? What does the cross accomplish? Through the crucifixion of Christ, the Son of God was glorified. Son of God was glorified. You need to make a correction on your notes. John, it's not John 16, it's John 12. It's on your notes there. So John 12, 23, 32, and then John 17, 1. John 12, 23 says, this is what Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He talked about this regularly throughout the Gospel of John as we've studied. What was the hour that he would be glorified? Crucifixion. We know that in verse 32. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. John, right after that verse says, he's talking about his crucifixion. And so how does this glorify the Son of God? Because there is nothing more glorious than someone than when someone gives up their glory to make someone else glorious that's what Christ did for us there's nothing more beautiful than when someone gives up their beauty to make someone else beautiful i can't help but to be deeply stirred when i see wounded soldiers here in america and the sacrifice that they made for you and I and our freedom. I'm always stirred because what did they do? They gave up their glory. They gave up their beauty so that we could be glorious and beautiful. That's just a dim glimpse of what Jesus did for us. So the Son of God was glorified. Here's the number two. The justice of God was satisfied. Justice of God was satisfied. Romans 3, 25 through 26. It's interesting. He uses this word propitiation. Maybe you've seen that in your ESV or other translations. The word propitiation means that all the wrath that was meant for us was placed on our Savior Jesus. And in fact, it goes on in verse 26. God is just, so he's a just God, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So here's the idea. In justice, God passed the required sentence of death on our sin, but in love, he took that punishment himself on the cross. So the Son of God was glorified. The justice of God was satisfied. Number three, the love of God was magnified. 
Okay. Listen to me. There is no love on this planet that compares to His love for you. Do you know that? Do you take moments throughout the day just to bask in the reality of His love for you? When was the last time you just felt overwhelmed by His love? There was an experience on your heart. You need to do that. I try to do that every morning when I spend time with Him. Listen to me. All He wants is you. He laid down His life so that He could get you. His love is magnified through the cross. It's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. He wants you. He wants you to be in a relationship with Him. That's what you were created for, to know Him, to walk with Him, to enjoy Him. <laughs> it's my favorite part of the Christian life. I've never been more loved than what I'm loved by Him and what He has done for me and loves me. I, I, I don't know what to say about it. No words. There's no words for that. All of us know John 3.16, but do you know 1 John 3.16? Listen to what it says. By this we know love. I know there's a lot of crazy definitions in our world today for love. They're all messed up, okay, in so many different ways. But he's, the Bible defines for us love. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And so to the degree you get that, when you understand that, you live in the reality of that, he laid down his life for you. Notice what it says, the second part of this. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Do you hear that? So to the degree that I understand that, live in the reality of it, is to the degree I'm going to lay it down my life for you, and you're going to lay down your life for me. See, when I get around Christians that are hateful and angry and, and don't want to reconcile, have attitude, I, I don't think they understand that. I'm like, hey, come, come, come back here. Hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, okay. You know what he did for you? Do you have any idea? I'm telling you, if you believe that, it's going to change you. You're going to be laying down your life for others. I'm going to cop an attitude. I'm going to be self-righteous and holier than now and, and criticize everybody. And You're not going to do that. You're not going to have that attitude. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Number four, the people of God are justified, sanctified, glorified. I only have one fill in the blank there, but it's, it's justified. But I started thinking about it last night and I go, no, it's all of these. Yes, it's all of these. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We've been justified. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So let me walk you through those three statements I just said. So, so we have been justified. We have been set free from the penalty of sin. There's nothing that separates us from God. He has dealt with our past. How does he deal with our present? We're being sanctified. He's setting us free from the power of sin working in our life. You know what sin is? Sin is loving anything more than you love Jesus, and he's setting us free from that where we begin to love him more than we love anything else. So he's setting us free from the very power of sin, and that's our present. What about our future? We will be glorified. 
We will be glorified. And one day he will set us free from the very presence of sin and suffering. That's in the future. So listen to me. We're getting ready to take communion here this morning. And I just want to say this, that if the gospel isn't the most amazing thing you've ever heard, then you haven't heard it. And the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian faith, and then you move on. You move on beyond the gospel. No, it's the A to Z. You don't go beyond the gospel. You go deeper into the gospel, and all of our problems are due to the fact of our failure to apply the gospel specifically to our lives in every area of our lives. Every one of our problems is due to the fact that we're not taking the gospel and working it down deep into every area of our lives. And we'll spend the rest of our life doing that. But what a joy to apply all that He is and what He's done for us and apply it specifically to every area of our life as we become more and more fully devoted to Christ. Now, if you've never made a commitment of your life to Christ, man, I can't think of a better time. This weekend, give your life to Him. You've heard pure gospel. You've heard pure gospel. So give your life to Him. How do you do it? You acknowledge that your sin separates you from God. You're more sinful than you ever dared to think. And then believe that he died in your place for your sins. You're more loved than you ever dared to dream. And then confess him as Lord and Savior. You can do it with a, with a prayer. It just goes like that. Lord, I accept the fact that my sin separates me from you. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I confess him as my Savior and Lord. I give my life to him. I want to live my life for him. You can do that right now as we pray. And make that commitment of your life to him. And then in about three weeks, we could baptize you. Yes. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah, praise God. And so, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. Jesus, you bore all of our sin upon the cross, all of our punishment, all of our guilt, all of our condemnation, all of our shame, all of our evil, all of our corruption, so that we might stand before a great and holy God, forgiven, reconciled, adopted into his family, lavished with his love, indwelt and transformed by his Holy Spirit, and guaranteed a place in heaven forever. There are no adequate words to describe how beautiful and glorious this is. This is privilege and pleasure beyond our wildest dreams. May we now celebrate all of this through communion. We pray in your beautiful name, Jesus. And everyone said, amen. We got three stations up here. Make your way up to one of the stations. Grab both the cups. Take it back to your seat. And uh, I'll lead us through the communion process. Be thinking, what is God speaking to you this morning? In what area of your life does he want, to, want you to apply the gospel so that you can experience more change? All for his glory. First Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together.
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. I got to tell you, I never get tired of hearing the gospel. I never get tired of hearing the gospel. Any more than I get tired of having my wife tell me that she loves me. I would never say to her, oh, you already told me that on our wedding night 40 some odd years ago, okay? I wouldn't say that. I say, I want to hear it every day. I want to hear the gospel every day. I want to be reminded of the gospel. It's like God telling me, I love you. Do you know how much I love you? This is how much I love you. And I've come to redeem you and restore you and rebuild your life. I love it. I absolutely love it. If you've never been baptized, if you've made a confession of faith in Jesus, even this weekend, I would encourage you to get baptized. We're going to do a baptism party here in about three weeks. There are always great celebrations, and so we're going to do a 10 to 15 minute class right over here to my left, your right at the end of the service, and one of our pastors will be up there to lead you through that. Or if you just have some questions about baptism, feel free to come over there. Next weekend, guess what? Resurrection of Jesus. Woo! John chapter 20. Now, the resurrection is not just a historical fact, but should be a daily reality. So come back next week, and we're going to talk about the daily reality in our lives. I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders. If you're new, we'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you have any questions, we'd love to answer those questions for you. Let me give you this blessing on the way out. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Love you guys.